This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, welcome back. Mike Smith in for Simi. The latest on the coronavirus outbreak, BC Health officials confirming yesterday another presumed positive case of coronavirus identified in British Columbia. In this case, it's a woman in her 30s. She lives in the Fraser Health region. The woman recently returned from traveling, not in China. She was traveling in Iran, Iran, and came back with the virus. She has a mild form of the virus, according to Dr. Bonnie Henry, BC's provincial health officer. But that is an interesting development here with the number of the other earlier cases identified in BC, of course, were people who had been traveling in China. Now you've got a case of someone who was traveling in Iran. There have been a lot of cases uh, identified uh, in Iran, certainly not like the ground zero in uh, China, but there have been cases identified in uh, in Iran for sure. A total of 18 cases in Iran. So that's weird that someone would come back from Iran and uh, identify with the virus when they get back here here's the hot question of the day for you on that would you say that your level of concern about the coronavirus is high moderate or low here's where you can vote on that today at cknw on twitter give me a follow while you are there please at mike smith news on twitter s-m-y-t-h at mike smith news on twitter Phone me on the buzz line in that one today and tell me if you're worried about coronavirus here. A case from Iran now identified in BC. 604-331-BUZZ is the number. 604-331-2899. Send me an email on it too. Mike at cknw.com. Canada's reputation in the world is stellar. Um, you know, the polling after the games was remarkable. We were the number one brand in the world for 2010 and 2011, and I think in the top group ever since. So that's all good. So all of the pieces, I, it's really hard to come up with a real negative about why you would not at least take a look underneath that rock and see what's there. All right. It was so nice. Do it twice. That was John Furlong, of course, the head of the 2010 Vancouver Olympics, speaking yesterday. When he comes out with the big reveal, he thinks the city should go for it again and bid for the 2030 Olympic Games. This is Mike Smith filling in for Simi, and it's got everybody talking about a 2030 Olympic Games in the city of Vancouver. We had a big debate last time about it. We're going to have another one right now. And uh, your opportunity to phone me on the open line and tell me what you think about it, too. We got both sides of it for you. George Affleck, former Vancouver City Councilor. He likes this idea. Hiya, George. Hey, how's it going? I'm good. Thanks for doing this. Also on the line, Stuart Parker. He's the former leader of the BC Green Party. He's uh, opposed to the Olympics. He's now with the... What's the name of your new party, Stuart? Uh, I'm the organizing chair of the BC Eco-Socialists. The Eco-Socialists. Oh, my goodness. Well, we thought we'd put all the, all the meaning in the name. Okay. <laughs> all right. George, let me go to you first. You like this idea. Tell me why. Oh, it's fantastic. You know, it, nothing beats making government get stuff done than a good deadline. And an Olympics like the, the last one we had and another one in 2030 will give us the ability to get a train built to Seattle, get a train built to UBC, get a whole bunch of infrastructure across the region done because deadlines are is what government needs. Why can't, why can't we do all that good stuff without spending billions of dollars on the Olympics? Come on, you've met the government, right? You, you, you work there. They move a bit slow sometimes. And I think that when you have these kinds of amazing events, these great opportunities that bring people together, that are exciting, that are fun, 
uh, it really motivates not only the government, but also motivates the private sector in partnerships with us. We can really get things done quickly as opposed to usual. Okay, it was certainly fun the last time. It was a good party. Let's go to Stuart uh, Parker. What do you think of this idea, Stuart? Well, um, you know, I'm not thrilled with it. I think that, uh, I mean, it's exciting to hear George thinking that we have all this extra money and that, um, you know, taxes aren't too high for us to start new programs and whatever. It's obviously a relief to uh, hear that we're not in serious financial straits, that we're not failing to get the basics done, and that we can afford to have a giant party where we invite the world. Myself, I think, you know, people often compare the Olympics to the bread and circuses in Rome. And in fact, we can't do that in British Columbia because we haven't really got the bread part nailed down yet. You know, maybe we can get to the circus when we figured out the bread. But right now, the shelter allowance for somebody on disability in Vancouver is $385 a month. Doesn't sound to me like we've got our housing situation under control. And there's a lot that needs to okay. have money spent on it, and um, this party is pretty far down my Stuart, list. Stuart, did you enjoy the Olympic Games back in 2010? You can be honest if you did. Uh, I mean, I caught some of it on TV. I was living yeah. in the States at the time, but remember, my family are Olympians. My mother ran in the Olympics, my uncle ran wow. in the Olympics, my great-grandfather wow. ran in the Olympics. Jeez. And one of the things that... Um, You know, so I got a lot of perspective on some of the positives of that movement and also on what makes the Olympics a success. And we do not have the formula for success in Vancouver in 2030 because we've got very high land costs and we've got housing shortages. Okay, let me go to George. George, what kind of pressure an Olympics is going to put on. George, what do you think of that? Well, certainly, uh, well, I think that Stuart's taking us off in a direction that's not relevant to the conversation, uh, but that's what eco-socialists do, I guess. I, I think that uh, the key here is a plan, obviously, has to be put in place. But if you look at 2010, that saved Vancouver from a, a recession in this region. It, it injected a significant amount of revenue into our and prosperity into our region that we wouldn't have had at, at, at the worst time that it, the economy's had in a generation. So it really saved us. I think that as long as the plan, you know, believe me, Stuart, I'm, of anybody, I hate spending money. Trust me, I am renowned for that. I am fiscally prudent 100%, but I also believe in investing in the future, and I believe in that in creating uh, a focused uh, energy for the government is always a successful way to work. Now, can I say that the NDP would do a good job at this? Not necessarily, but if we put a plan together, I think it's possible to do something that's cash-neutral and successful okay. and fun and great for Vancouver. George, when you say that the, the last Olympic Games saved us from a recession, I've also heard in the argument, and I'm sure you have as well, that it also triggered an affordability crisis in real estate. There's no, there's no real true evidence for that. If you look at Toronto, didn't have a Games. They have a problem with real estate. Uh, New York had, didn't have an Olympic Games. It had a problem with pricing. Los Angeles had, didn't have, you know, there's, the, the, the economy over the last 10 years has, has been significant. I'm talking more at the ground level for so small businesses, for restaurants, places that would yeah. have really been hurt for a couple of years in that period of time. 
We're saved by the Olympics, and I think that's Stuart. a good good thing. Stuart Parker, well, you, you know, that? George is basically making the argument that the Olympics was an economic stimulus package, and I'm not against economic stimulus packages, but the problem with this stimulus package is, according to a Globe and Mail analysis, of the $24 billion that Gordon Campbell added to our province's debt, the Olympics accounted for $7 billion of that, and paying that interest, paying that debt down, the fact that this stimulus package just kicked the can down the road to us now means that while we're trying to do a major energy transition. Well, we're trying to provide people with the basics of housing and food. We are paying off a $7 billion debt from a stimulus package. Also, you can't have it both ways, George. You can't argue Vancouver was going to have a recession and we saved it and the Olympics totally changed the economy here and all this money and and then at the same time argue that it had no effect because similar things happened in all these other major cities. So, look, we all know it worsened the affordability crisis. Okay. The question is by how much? George. I think that it's important that government knows its roles and responsibilities. Infrastructure needs government support. We got the Canada Line, we got a community center in Vancouver, we got facilities in Richmond, we got facilities in, in Whistler, we got ho- significant housing in Whistler, housing in Vancouver. We got yeah. a ton of stuff that we got built because of the Olympics. That's important. And government's role in building infrastructure is key. Now, I prefer a triple P, like private public partnerships, so that some of the pressures put on private sector in these situations and in the case of the, of the olympics we had that but i think it's important that we understand that capital investments in our society the roles and responsibilities the government needs to be the focus of things that are important to the basics of things like uh social housing and uh building highways and building bridges and building community centers these are things that government's roles and responsibilities okay. Other shiny objects are not important. These are the things and, that and you know what, George? Governments should do that anyway, and they do do that anyway. The idea that you need to host the Olympics every time you need a new rapid transit line built or you need some development money to come out is a ridiculous idea. Most investment in infrastructure happens at other times. Let me ask. And let me ask you guys what this. What we know is yeah. that during the Olympics. The public-private partnerships were a disaster. The Olympic Village was supposed to be affordable rental after the Olympics, but it wasn't, even though the government spent millions of dollars bailing out real estate developers, bailing out the super-rich. Almost all of that affordable rental was canceled. And that's the kind of P3 nonsense we don't want to see again. Okay, let me ask you guys this. I, I wonder if this is actually a realistic proposal or if uh, furlong is like dreaming in technicolor here having some kind of flashback to his past glory days or something because you've got a provincial government here in power that does not seem very enthusiastic about this idea i'm not sure this city council would be keen on it either have a listen to this guys here's premier john horrigan speaking yesterday not exactly thrilled with this proposal I'll have to go back to the finance minister and, and see what we have in the budget for uh, hypothetical uh, bid processes 10 years from now. Yeah, he's kind of like uh, less than enthusiastic about the idea. George, is this doable? It's doable, but we don't have inspirational leaders in Vancouver or in uh, Victoria right now. We don't have somebody in either place that's going to inspire this to happen. Horgan's passing the bus to Vancouver. Vancouver's mayor passed it back to the province. It's around and around we go. We have two uh, governments here who don't seem interested. So unless the private sector really takes a lead on this, yeah. I don't see any leaders uh, in this. Unless, unless a leader of uh, somebody like 
you know, the Surrey mayor or somebody else outside the city, or we work in partnership with Seattle and look at a, a regional strategy. Yeah. I don't see the leadership that we currently have to pull this off, unfortunately. And so, Don, you know, John Furlong is really is dreaming in technicolor here, I think. Stuart Parker. Well, you know, I think the issue is that a junior government like a municipal government can't host these things because they require not just billions of dollars, $7 billion of debt we rang up doing the last one. They also require the province and national government uh, doing things like slum clearance and suppressing protests and doing all kinds of really odious things that have been associated with Olympics ever since the 68 Olympics. My uncle left the Olympic movement disillusioned because he saw how having a big party in town functions as a way for governments to do odious things they wouldn't otherwise get away with. And we certainly saw that last time with the temporary slum clearance and preemptive arrests of so many people. Vanessa in Surrey, hi. Hi there. Hi, go ahead. Hi, um, I want to address George here, or Amos at George. Thank you so much, George, for bringing forward your lived experience. I am super glad to hear that your family and your friends will benefit from this Olympic project. I'd like to share my current life experience. I'm a 47-year-old woman. I'm disabled. I also own a small business. I'm not allowed to operate it in my government-subsidized housing. So in regards to small business owners, to the disabled, to low-income people, to the homeless, who are you serving, George, with your support of billions of our dollars being sent to foreign entities? Who are you serving, sir? George. Well, uh, interesting question. I mean, I'm a small business owner myself, and so uh, at the time, I wasn't in politics back then. I, I benefited, uh, you know, from from the Olympics as far as the clients and business that I got, and I know a lot of other companies that did. There was a lot of cash infusion into all kinds of businesses, uh, whether it be restaurants, service providers, everything. And so, I think it's important that we look at the the holistic impact that it has. It also is something that's cel- it's a celebration of of, of many things, cultural. Uh, physical, yeah. uh, all those things that we talked about. So well, I it's think also it's, it's also the Paralympics are in there too. I mean, Absolutely. speaking of speaking of disabled yeah. British Columbians, yeah, they they got a significant infusion of, of facilities uh, yeah. at that time, and I think that is important to think about these things. Again, it goes back to my point about having been in government and also being a business owner. Uh, and I always find it hilarious when business owners say they they can run government better. It's it's not possible. Believe me, if I could run government the way I run well, my business, it would be great. But business move, government moves slow, and things like this really get them moving. And I think it's important that we give these kinds of incentives to get government and bureaucrats getting stuff done. Okay, Stuart Parker. I mean, you got to admit that when you have a big party like this and people coming in the, the town from around the world, it's good for business, isn't it? Oh yes. Yeah. Some businesses certainly benefit. Many businesses, as we know, up the Canby Boulevard uh, went out of business because of the rush construction of the Canada Line and the massive inflation of the costs of rent. We see less diverse business strips, more expensive business strips, people struggling to keep serving staff in their restaurants because rents were pushed up too high by the development associated with the 2010 Olympics. The idea that if you just 
just throw cash at stuff, everything is going to get better. You know, that's how the Spanish Empire fell in the 18th century. They thought if they just brought gold over, that they would become prosperous. But instead, it triggered inflation, deindustrialization, and their own affordability crisis. And that's exactly what Vancouver is teetering on the edge of now. We want a city where it's affordable to live. It's affordable to do business. And so the idea that just throwing money at something will make it more prosperous, especially when all that money's borrowed and we're busy paying interest on it right now, and yeah. it's curtailing things that our government needs to do in the present, then that's a very bad use of money. Okay. There are much well, better imagine, ways. Imagine, how, imagine, well, imagine, how, imagine what we could do with $7 billion dollars if on, we just went and borrowed it and did boring, it for something useful. How, hang on, Stuart. Imagine, oh, go ahead, George. The world, imagine how boring the world would be if people like Stuart ran things. I mean, come on. It, should we just not do anything? We'll just sit around and just not do anything in our in our world. Oh, for God's <laughs> sake, George! Like, don't straw you know, man this. I enjoy a nice beverage and a good time, probably more than you do. But one of us may, <laughs> one of us can have a good time without spending seven billion dollars in provincial debt. Okay. I don't think the I don't think Vancouverites will fail to have a good time, fail to have good parties, fail to have major cultural events unless we use the power of the state to force people into a party they don't even want to have. Okay, hang on a sec. Let's go squeeze in one more call. Gary and Burnaby, hi. How are you doing, gentlemen? Uh, first of all, uh, being over 70 years old and born in this city, I think one of the worst things that ever happened to my city was Expo 86. But that's another story. As far as the Olympics goes, yeah, it was a fantastic time. It really was. And I'm all for having the Olympics here once again under one condition. And that one condition is that we have absolutely nothing to do with the Olympic Committee or those old fossils that run well, it. Well, good, good luck with that, Gary. Thank you for the call. We just got one minute left, guys. I mean, look, you're going to have to deal with, uh, with, with the international, the IOC. George Affleck, just a minute left, well, guys. Well, just that point, when I worked at Expo 86, I worked at the BC Pavilion. I helped out at the Olympics. These things are life and transformational. I, I appreciated them and such a, as a 21-year-old and then as a 40-plus-year-old at these times. And I think these kinds of events are really important for cities to do. It's a chance to bring people together. Okay. It's a chance to celebrate. Okay, Stuart, you want to sum it up in 10 uh, seconds? I, I'm here in Prince George. It's 10 degrees. Last Olympics, we had to truck snow in from Manning Park. Assume, I mean, I don't even know we'll have a winter to go with a Winter Olympics in 2030. We need to be focusing on the climate file. Okay. We need to be focusing on basic affordability. This party is ridiculous. Uh, thank you. Thank you, guys. We could have kept thank going, you. but I, I appreciate both of you for a nice, lively discussion there. George Affleck, <laughs> Stuart Parker, thank you to both of you gentlemen. You can still buy the world of Coke. It's just going to cost you more in B.C. starting July 1st after the budget on Tuesday. Finance Minister Carol James unveiling that pop tax. So this one kicks in July 1st, Canada Day. Happy Canada Day. You'll have to pay more for your carbonated beverages. Now, I remember the debate on this thing. It's been going on for years. They always said it'd be like a sugar tax, right? Like you want to tax sugary drinks. Because sugar is bad for you. What they've unveiled here, though, is a carbonated beverage tax. So it doesn't matter if it's got sugar or other kind of sweeteners or artificial sweeteners. You're going to pay the same. So you'll pay extra for your diet drinks, too. But we're going to get into the whole pop tax debate 
right now. I got both sides of it for you. Dr. Tom Warshawski on the line. He's a pediatrician. He's the chair of the Childhood Obesity Foundation. Hi, Tom. Good morning, Mike. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for doing this. Also on the line is Chris Sims, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Hi, Chris. Good morning. Thank you to both of you for doing this. Tom, let me go to you first. I remember talking to you on the radio years and years ago about this idea. I mean, you've been campaigning for this for a long time. You must be a happy man to see it come true here now. Well, fairly happy. What we've been campaigning for, not just our organization, but almost all the major health charities in British Columbia, is that the exemption to the PST be removed for sugar-sweetened beverages, sugary drinks. The the actual tax measures announced uh, earlier this week is not quite what we had asked for, because I think, as you pointed out, uh, diet drinks are also going to be included in the removal of the exemption. And there's a, there's a rationale for that, but that's not what we were proposing. We were really after that the, the PSD exemption be removed from sugary drinks. Right. What is the rationale for taxing diet drinks? I suspect, because we've met with finance before and they've asked this question around uh, uh, you know diet drinks and, and whether or not it should be also... Uh, part of the net that's captured when you remove the PSD exemption. Going back historically in terms of exempting foods, necessities from the PST, is the premise that these are necessities of life. And for hydration, the necessity of life is is water. And across BC and Canada, we have a great hydration source available for free. That's water. The other stuff is somewhat of a luxury good. It's not uh, an essential. So the GST applies to uh, non-sweetened beverages as well as sweetened beverages. So this, this move by our province really just goes in alignment with the rest of the country. Okay. All right, Chris Sims, your thoughts on the pop tax? Well, we just think this is unfair, and it's kind of goofy how they're applying it. Uh, as you pointed out, and as the doctor points out, uh, this supposedly sugary drink tax is being applied to drinks that don't contain any sugar. That includes, say, a diet cola that uses aspartame. It also includes some of those fancy pops that use things like stevia or monk fruit in them. And it also doesn't include drinks that have a heck of a lot of sugar in them. So, for example, there's a bit of elitism that works into these taxes. It's kind of a form of food snobbery. It's where people say, you shouldn't be drinking or eating that because it's bad for you. And so I'm going to tax it almost as a form of a sin tax. But when you break it down, it often affects the poor and lower income much more often. And I can give you an example. So say you've got that fancy mocha latte from your fancy coffee shop. That's about $6. A lot of people with high means buy some of those things every single day. It has exactly the same amount of sugar as a can of cola for about $1.25 at your local corner store. Marcy's Mocha, no tax. Clark's Cola, he gets a tax. Why? Because people look down their noses at people who drink pop. So they're the ones that get the tax. So we do think it's fundamentally unfair. Dr. Tom Warshawski, what do you think of that? Well, I guess I I disagree. Um, In terms of the extension of the PST to include these different products, I think my conversations with finance is just how able they are to do it, how able they are to implement it. And I think this was an implementation issue as opposed to snobbery, to be honest. The other issue is one of what type of taxation actually decreases consumption. And if you were to levy an excise tax on products, which is the type of taxation which provinces can't do, but federal governments can do within Canada, that type of of a tax should be implemented 
across the board. So in, in that way, I agree with Marcy in terms of all products that have excessive amounts of sugar should be, um, I would say, captured by the tax, and then, and then it's an equal playing field. Let, let me ask you this, just generally speaking, as the chair of the Childhood Obesity Foundation, and I don't think anyone would argue that child obesity is, is not a problem in our society, because I think it, I think it is. What is, give me, the, give me your, case, your take on sugar, like overconsumption of sugar, and especially sugary drinks by kids, and what kind of health impacts and, and is that uh, inflicting on our society? Well, we know that sugary drinks have unique properties, and there's a strong scientific consensus about this. The problem with sugary drinks are those calories don't register as food, and they don't induce satiety. So when you're sitting down to eat your pizza, and you have a glass of water, you'll eat two pieces of pizza. If you sit down with a glass of a carbonated sweetened drink, you'll still eat two pieces of pizza, and you'll get those extra calories in the beverage form as well. Generally, those extra calories then are saved as excess body fat. And incrementally, if you do this you know, two or three times per, per week, you're going to get increase your body fat mass. And that becomes a problem when you get too much of it. So for children and youth, we're beginning to see a much higher incidence in fatty liver disease, something which you can't just tell by looking at somebody, but because of the properties of the fructose that's in the sugar, it actually induces fatty liver disease and, and elevated liver enzymes. If the unhealthy weight continues into adulthood, then we get increased risk of type 2 diabetes, heart yeah. disease, hypertension, stroke, and 13 different types of cancer. So there are huge health impacts. As a clinician, when I see kids in the office and they have uh, an issue with an unhealthy body weight and I do my history, if they're regular consumers of sugary beverages and I can give them that advice and they're able to implement that and decrease their sugary drink consumption, I see return on investment. I see the, the BMI begin to normalize within a month or two. So it's very okay. dramatic. Mm. Okay, Chris Sims, would you, you know, is bringing in a tax a good way to improve the situation? No, because we have studies that show this doesn't work. So while we completely agree that childhood obesity and adult obesity and uh, this general problem is a major issue, we absolutely yeah. understand that. Our point is, is that taxing the stuff doesn't work. So, for example, in Mexico, it famously brought in a, a nationwide pop tax or a soda tax, as they call it down in the United States. And while initially we saw consumption dip after the tax started, after a little while, it bounced right back up to pre-tax levels. So people are still buying and consuming the same amount of sugary or sweetened drinks in Mexico, but the tax man has more money. So all this ultimately does, while the, the intention they say is good and hard to argue against, the result is the consumption stays the same, but the government just takes more of our money. Okay, Jennifer and Poco. Hey, I, um, I, I agree with the tax if it made sense. Um, I'm wondering, are we taxing things cause drinks that have bubbles in them, or are we taxing drinks that have sugar in them? Because bubbles. there's, a, there's oh. a heck of a lot of stuff out there that has a lot more sugar, or a lot of sugar, even milk. Milk no. products, chocolate milk, that has a lot yeah. of sugar. Or, yeah, right. Um, like the previous caller said, coffee drinks. Um, I use a soda stream at home. Are you going to tax my soda stream canister because it puts bubbles and things, and so does the machine, <laughs> and so do the syrups. The syrups add sugar. Or if I opt for a non-sugar syrup, am I going to be taxed on that? Okay, Chris, break it down for me. Will you? It's, a, it's a bubble tax, right? It's bubbles. It's, it's both. So okay. I, I talked very in-depth with the government about this during budget lockup. So... Starting with pop, 
anything that comes out of one of those pop towers, you know, when you fill up your own cup, the moment you use one of those pop towers, it's taxed. It doesn't matter if it's iced tea, Diet Coke, full-on Coca-Cola, full of the sugar, or even Minute Maid, okay? But uh, if you buy it from a store, your bottled Minute Maid will not have a tax. So if it comes out of the, the pop tower, all of that is taxed. Also, interestingly, anything that comes out of a drink vending machine, except for coffee vending machines, you know, the ones where you stick your cup down and it fills it up with a button, anything that comes out of a vending machine that is mixed, like it includes pop and water and juice, every one of them is getting this tax. So if you go up, Hmm. theoretically, I imagine if you go up to a Coke machine and you buy a bottle of Dasani water, if they also water, offer Coca-Cola in that machine, your Dasani water is getting a no, sugar tax. No, no. Are they going to tax water? That's as far as I understand, and it's as oh. how the law reads. Now, oh, they might want to go back and change that somehow, um, but when it was explained to me, they said anything out of, out of a pop tower or anything out of a vending machine, okay. except for coffee, um, is taxed. I also asked them, I said, what about, same thing with chocolate milk. And they said, yeah. we would only tax the chocolate milk if it came out of a fountain machine. Oh. And I said, that's gross. And they agreed. Ooh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tom, what do you think about that? Should they put a tax on chocolate milk, too? Well, this is, we're talking about the provincial sales tax now, the, yeah. the government measure. And I think it's really a problem with implementation, how you actually do this in a way to capture as many products as possible, knowing that there'll be some products that shouldn't get captured that do and some that, uh, that should and, and aren't captured. Yeah. So that, that, is, that is a problem. And uh, I, I guess the government has to work that out in conjunction with the various stakeholders. Okay. In okay. terms of chocolate milk or sweetened yeah. milks, Milk is a little bit different from the traditional sugar-sweetened beverages because there are other elements, other uh, aspects to milk in terms of the protein and the fat slows down the absorption. So you don't have that negative metabolic effect that I talked about earlier in terms of mm. satiety. So it's not a target for a specific sugary drink tax. Okay, Steve and Delta on the open line. Hi. Steve. Pop is very bad. It, you know, it, it's got so much sugar in it, but anytime I get taxed by the government, I, I just, I don't like it. I mean, there's a lot of other ways they can do it. They can go to the manufacturers and make them lower their sugar content, which will ruin the taste of the pop, and then people will buy less pop. You know, just hitting the taxpayer, people are going to buy it anyways. It just means there's going to be less money for people mm-hmm. to buy healthy food. You know, what about chocolate bars? What about candies? What about gum? You know, that stuff is pure sugar. You know, okay, what, about okay, sugar, what about sugar cubes? Tom, you know, let me go. Let me go back. Let me go back to you, Tom. Thank you for the call. Uh, Chris made an earlier argument as well, similar to this caller, Tom, saying that it's not going to work. It's not going to be effective. In your experience and knowledge on this issue, is it effective at this kind of tax? Well, well, again, two different taxes. So the the provincial sales tax, there's no evidence that that is going to change consumption because you're not going to see any price differential until you've actually looked at your receipt. So there's no evidence and no one recommends that as a, as a way to shift behavior. The rationale to take the, the sales tax, uh, put the provincial sales tax on these sugared products and the ones that the caller just mentioned in terms of chocolate bars, etc., the sales tax already applies to that. So those sugary uh, products are already being captured. But these mm, products... I don't think so, actually, drinks, sir. I don't think it applies to snacks, right? Uh, oh, well, I don't know. It's the GST. Uh, GST. I think the GST applies to that as well, but I, I, I'm not an expert on this, to be honest. Yeah. I, I thought that, it, and if it doesn't, it should, to be honest, uh, because those are not those are not essentials. Okay. But in terms of the literature around the efficacy of a particular excise tax, which only can be 
done at a federal government in Canada. Uh, I guess Chris and I would have to agree to disagree on the, what the literature shows. The, um, she mentioned Mexico, but also Berkeley, San Francisco, other cities in the States have done this. Chile's done it, and it's been done across the world. Generally, what you see is for every 10% increase in the price of the product, you see a corresponding decrease, a slightly less decrease in, in consumption, and a shift towards uh, okay. purchasing uh, uh, healthier beverages in terms of water. And I think one of the things that people should take note of is big beverage spends uh, spends in the U.S. roughly $20 million per year fighting these taxes, fighting soda taxes. They do that for a reason, because because they know that soda taxes threaten their business model. Uh, interesting that the doctor brought up Berkeley, uh, because based on what I could read from that same study, uh, people then upped their caloric intake elsewhere. They, they okay. offset it. So the, the argument is, is even though you can implement these sort of taxes or diversionary measures, that people's consumption of their calories will always bounce back up okay. to previous levels, and that it's education that changes people's choices for what they put in their mouths, not taxes. To- Let's go to Paul in New West on the open line. Hi, Paul. I think the question's already been answered, but what about carbonated water? There's no flavoring in it, just plain carbonated water. It's only sin that's got bubbles in it. Chris, is that going to be taxed? From what I understand, and again, they could go back and fix this, but from what I was told by the department, yes, if it comes out of a vending machine or, you know, if you're at the bar and the bartender's using one of those kind of um, guns, like a soda tube gun, anything that comes out of the tip of that gun is also taxed. Ruth in Port Moody, hi. Hi, yeah, I'm uh, completely against the tax. Uh, I, I think, you know, like, if you just look at uh, society as a whole, right, like you've got liquor, cigarettes, uh, you, you've got all sorts of vices out here that are taxed to the max, and while people might be quitting, I, I agree with the um, the tax lady there that it's uh, more about education, and they really have to push, uh, I think, okay. a lot of... Uh, education on the whole thing. I, I think okay. the tax is just a tax grab, and it's nothing more than that. Ruth, thank you for the call. We just have a minute left, sadly, guys. Tom, how would you respond to that? Like, it's a frequent argument. Just educate people and make them make their own, let them make their own decisions. Your thoughts? Well, the studies I've seen show that the combination works best. So education is useful. It's, it's necessary, but it doesn't take you all the way. That combination of both uh, education plus a price disincentive really does nudge behavior. And again, the pop companies want, they, that's what their argument is. Just educate, educate, because they know it won't okay. seriously affect sales. That okay. combination, education tax, decreases sales, and we're okay. all better off for it. Chris, you want to sum up? you got 15 seconds there. This is going to take $38 million away from British Columbians once it's fully implemented. We've shown studies that it does not decrease behavior, and we fully support educating people, especially kids, in schools that we already pay for. Tell them there. Thank you, guys, for a good discussion. Dr. Tom Warshawski, Childhood Obesity Foundation, Chris Sims, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. And let's check in now with Stuart Muir, Executive Director of ResourceWorks. He supports the Coastal GasLink Pipeline. Been on the road in the Wet'suwet'en Territory, speaking to community members up there. Very pleased to welcome him, Stuart. Thank you for coming on. Thanks, Mike. Uh, Tell me where you visited here on this trip. And for people who've uh, been following you on social media, it's been very interesting to to see you speak to the people in this community that I don't think get enough of a platform. And they're the Mm. people in these communities who support this pipeline. I'm not saying there are indigenous people who are opposed, there are no indigenous people opposed Mm. to the thing, this thing. Obviously there are, but there are a lot of first nations people who support this pipeline. Tell me where you visited. Yeah, that's what we're seeing for sure, Mike. We've been up in, in Kitimat on the coast, but mainly we've been spending our time right in the, 
the center of all this controversy, which is in the Bulkley and the Chaco area, uh, north of that. Broadly speaking, I would call this the Wet'suwet'en territories, where the six local villages that are the, what make up that greater nation are located. And it's really the most beautiful country in the world. I posted a few pictures of the mountain peaks at, yeah. at sunrise or sundown. Wow, it's it's gorgeous up there. Beautiful time of year. But, you know, there's also in a it's a culture that's 10,000 years old and they've been governing themselves through traditional law in that territory for all that time. And then the uh, European laws and people come along and, and kaboom, right? So th- there's a very painful uh, process that we're still going through, even though we're in the era, era I, I should hope, of reconciliation. We've had the, you know, the truth and reconciliation process. A lot yeah. of people are committing really in their hearts and the, their deeds to, to make this better. And, and I certainly feel I am doing that i know so many others are and so how do you how do you get better how do you move forward because you can't move backward and 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 that's what i hear so often around this so um you know i've got some clips hopefully we'll be able to play later on but talking yeah. to people um you know first thing to, to make, be really clear that there are historic grievances there are things unresolved there's real issues here but at the same time i think um because there's both the the uh, government for those local bands and they're not the whole sprawl of the territory. They're kind of isolated, and that's where a lot of people live. Not everyone. Some people live off reserve in Smithers and towns like that. But uh, they have the, the biggest community. I think it's uh, under 2,000 people is Whitsitt or Morrisville and, or Morristown. And that's, that's where I think a lot of the people whose voices have been most loudly heard. I was up there yesterday. I looked in at the training center. Um, I've talked to a hereditary chief there. Like it, everyone is hearing about hereditary chiefs who are against the project. They've gone down east to make their say. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, if you go to the anthropology text, there's 174 uh, hereditary chiefs in the Wet'suwet'en traditional. I, I don't think there's that many individuals today who hold those titles. But, you know, it's a very complex governance system. And it's yeah. based on what they call the feast hall. Now, that's not a big buffet, by the way, although you can have food. It's It's the traditional parliament and it's a participatory consensus-based parliament we've been hearing this we've been as i re- reach with uh, research this and travel with margareta uh, dovegill who is our director of research and is such an eager student of this material we're we're making some discoveries and we've been sharing that in, in twitter in different right. areas and talking about it um what what we think is happening is there has been i think an opportunistic um attempt by people with national policy objectives to do with climate. They don't want a pipeline. They have this issue or that issue who, who have identified. Uh, we, we've even said, uh, you know, weaponized a small faction of what's so in traditional governance in order to achieve those the, ends. And that's that's what we're seeing here. I think one of the things that we've, we've seen here is that it's evolved from not just a dispute between hereditary chiefs of the Wet'suwet'en First Nation who are opposed to this natural gas pipeline but there are a whole bunch of other issues that have kind of got merged into it. So you've got environmental activism, you've got climate change activists, you've got some real extremist groups involved, you've got anarchists who are just right out there saying openly that the whole Canadian state is illegitimate and we're going to smash the economy and destroy it. So there's all these different things have, have come into play with the blockades we've seen. As you went through these traditional territories, did you get a sense from the Wet'suwet'en people themselves on the ground that they're they're frustrated with what they're seeing? Do they support these blockades? Do they not support them? What are, what did people tell you up there? 
Yeah, there's some, I mean, because it's not a large population, there's one or two degrees of separation, a lot of people's, I, I think there's been a tendency in amongst uh, those those clans and families not to confront one another because they've got to live with each other, right? So even though there's someone who is on the other side of an issue, there there seems to be, you know, sort of a, a silence on this, which has not really been to their advantage if they want to uh, talk about the, the jobs and benefits that so many do support. And I think what's happening now that the pressure is on, those who are supportive of a, an investment that means more than a billion dollars of, of wages and benefits uh, for those First Nations uh, are starting to realize they better speak up. And one yeah. thing we've seen is that there is a, a cultural, cultural of, of, of bullying. You know, some of these chiefs, they, they, I've heard the term the Fab Five for these five hereditary chiefs. Uh, they're, they're, they're not universally, uh, I believe you can say, majority uh, supported. They are uh, seemingly using the authority they have there, wearing their regalia, which has very much upset some of the elders. Uh, I heard that a lot. You know, you shouldn't be taking those those vestments out of the feast house and and flaunt them that way and drag them mm. through the mud is very upsetting for the elders. Um, I, you know, I think that's one thread. Also, people who are just very practical. Look, uh, get training for the young people. Yeah. They don't have li- unlimited options. This is not downtown Toronto where supposedly they're marching for the Wet'suwet'en. Well, they're actually doing the opposite. They're marching against the Wet'suwet'en. They don't know it because they're stopping jobs and training opportunities, apprenticeships that will be not just a couple of years of, of employment for a pipeline, and some people okay. dismiss it that way. It's a lifetime career. You can take where you want to go. Okay, let's listen to a few of the people that you met and you spoke to on, on this journey that you took. So let's start with... Uh, Edward Tom. Now, this is a Wet'suwet'en man you spoke to, and here's what he said. You have to be pretty much unemployed to be a protester, because if they had a job, they wouldn't be protesting. Advice to you protesters? Go get some training, get a real job. Okay, I mean, is this guy a minority opinion about the protesters, or is that typical of what you heard? How would you call yeah, he's a little more direct than, yeah. than some, but that's <laughs> yeah. that's pretty typical, because he, he wants to have a job. He wants to feed his family. I've talked to a number of workers right now. They're idled because of this nonsense that's going on, and they're unhappy about it. Because um, I met with one gentleman, a similar story to Edward Tom. He he was with his son. at met him at the, uh, at, at the uh, t- Timmy's in Smithers, and boy, I don't know how he's going to pay the rent, you know, um, mm. it's it's or how he's going to put food on the table. It's it's caused directly by this friction. I've heard so much of that. Yeah, another thing that I think is is fascinating that I've learned a lot about just in the last couple of weeks, and that are, is the number of Indigenous-owned and operated businesses. There mm-hmm. are a lot of them, and a lot of them have signed contracts to do work on this pipeline. And the spinoff is incredible, like over $600 million bucks worth of contracts, and there are more being signed. And you're talking about businesses in communities that are remote, as you mentioned, and have seen a lot of other kind of resource industries kind of falter and dry up a little bit. And then you get this big project coming through. It's creating a lot of a lot of work. And people are worried about that, that disappearing. Have a listen to this. Here's another person you spoke to, Troy Young, another Wet'suwet'en man, and uh, one of the businesses he's involved with. If the project were to be halted, the loss would be probably insurmountable for this area. Nobody's ever going to invest here again. Okay, tell me about this guy and his business. Yeah, Troy Young, he's a, a, a anthropologist by training, actually. He went away to university, but then he came home, uh, re- built a family business up. It's now jointly owned with the Witsit First Nation. Oddly enough, one of those 
those uh, hereditary chiefs who's down east on this issue is on the board of this business that employs probably 20 Wet'suwet'en members as well as 100 uh, others on things to do with the Coastal Gas Link Pipeline. It's, it's one of the weird things. In this smaller community, people have these these sometimes contradictory roles. And so Troy, we yeah. met with in Smithers last week. Um, he was very uh, articulate about these issues. I, I think uh, there, there's a realization now that this has a direct impact in, in communities that is is building, you know, they're putting a 46, I've told 46 unit apartment building into into Witsit Village where it's needed because people are living eight to nine to a house, dilapidated housing in some cases, and they won't have that if this doesn't go through. Okay, his his company is called Kaya Resources. Is that right? That's correct. What, what kind of what kind of work does he do there with that company? Yeah, they're doing work on the pipeline route to build roads and clear uh, through the pipeline route. So that's yeah. something that requires a lot of skills out in the bush. Yeah, I mean, I talked to I talked to the guy who's uh, the chief of um, contract negotiation for Coastal GasLink. He, he's an indigenous guy himself, and he's in charge of negotiating uh, these contracts. And when you start taking a close sort of deeper dive into these contracts and the economic spinoff it creates in these in these remote communities, I mean, man, you're talking like these jobs are like gold up there. I mean, there's not a lot of great paying jobs around up there. Oh, that that's just it. Yeah. As we listen to some of the voices of the Wet'suwet'en uh, on the Coastal Gasoline Pipeline. Let's have a listen to this one, Stuart. Here is Candace Wilson. Now, she is from the Heisla First Nation. It's a Wet'suwet'en problem that needs a Wet'suwet'en solution. And I really hope they can come to terms and come to an agreement. You know, there are benefits and there is a way to do it responsibly. Okay, how do they figure this out if you've got an elected band council that supports the pipeline and hereditary chiefs that don't? How do they figure this out? Yeah, I mean, there are hereditary chiefs who sit on elected councils. It's worth noting that two of the hereditary chiefs who are down east seeking to unify with the this radical Mohawk thing are uh, ones who stood for office in the Witsit First Nation and failed to win the votes of the residents of that place. So they're not democratically supported in that sense. Um, yet these are the people. So you mean? So you mean these are her, these are hereditary chiefs who ran for an elected council? Did they run on like an anti-pipeline platform and lost? I, I can't speak to their platform, but they're yeah. very much known as the ones leading the anti-pipeline uh, hereditary uh, uh, campaign. So yeah. presumably that would be known in the community. But they but people didn't vote for them, and you know seventy percent, seven zero percent of people in one of the six nations that we visited uh, voted in favor when they had a chance, more of a referendum style to support the pipeline. So, you know, there's this, you know, wide, very strong popular support for the project. And, and so what, what uh, Candace uh, Wilson was just saying from Heisla on the coast is, is a very uh, a significant statement that I've been hearing from so many, which is, you know, leave the Wet'suwet'en to go into the traditions that they have to find the solution mm-hmm. because, you know, residential schools and imposed solution to supposed problems was not a solution for the Indigenous people of Canada, uh, whenever the government or other well-meaning outsiders try to bring a solution to fix things, it never works out. No. So what's the way to back off from this and leave the traditions? But one of the problems in this is the feast hall system seems to have been, because of the complexities of, of we think it's uh, the, the, the high uh, premature mortality rates and, and migration issues uh, coming and going, um, lots of social strains, that have, I think, weakened, uh, we, we, we believe, the hereditary uh, feasting system, but it's such a, such a valuable part of it. And how can it be 
restored to bring yeah. strength to what the people want because it is a consensus-based model. We, we've looked at the, the studies. You know, it's not a dictatorship. It's not, that's not the tradition that people have told us is the what's in tradition. It's not like five men can, you know, strip the titles from the women who had them before and take over and dictate their terms, which is kind of what's happened here. It, it's, it's really documented. We know other authors have said this as, as being a consensus-based uh, right. democratic system, but it's not functioning properly for some reason. Okay. Gary Nazio, is that how you pronounce his name? Yes. Yeah. Gary, Gary Nazio. Listen to some more Wet'suwet'en voices here. Now, is this correct? Sir? This, this guy is a hereditary chief, is that right? Yes, he is. Yeah, yeah. There's, you know, there's different layers and or, an order, a hierarchy, yeah. um, and he's not, you know, the the pointy top of it, but he is nevertheless a uh, true hereditary chief of okay. his clan, the okay. Laxiliu clan, the Small Frog clan. Uh, Let's listen to what he has to say here, Gary Nazio. Well, the benefits that we're getting now from coastal gas link is um, we're getting more money to send our high school graduates to university. And now we're get we getting our elders to teach our younger students in our um, elementary school in the village here. So uh, we're getting lots of benefits, and our housing is going to increase because we're uh, way behind on our housing, and there's a list of about maybe 120 people that are waiting to get a house. Okay, there may be a perception out there that all the hereditary chiefs are opposed to this pipeline, but that's clearly not the case. Mm, yep, that's true. Uh, very mixed there. We have spoken to many hereditary chiefs who are strongly supportive of the pipeline. Okay, Bonnie George is another Wet'suwet'en voice. Have a listen. Just let us deal with it, and if we deal with it in a way that we were taught by our elders and our chiefs in the past, we will resolve this. Okay, tell me about her. Well, the you know the, the most humbling thing of being able to, um, you know, I, I wherever I've gone, I've asked to be invited there. I haven't just showed up, you okay. know. And it's the respect, you know, the culture of respect that is at the the heart of the Quetzalcoatl culture. It, in, in my okay. opinion, is the most yeah. I got to jump in. I got to step on you there, Stuart, as we run up against sure, the sure. clock here. But I want to thank you for coming on today. Thanks, Mike. Okay, Stuart Muir, Resource Works. All right, earlier today on the show, we talked about the idea of a 2030 Olympic Games in the city of Vancouver. Wouldn't that be incredible? This really got kicked up a notch yesterday when Jack Furlong said this would be a great idea. It was so nice the first time. Let's do it twice. Let's go for it again. Of course, he was the organizer of the 2010 Olympic Games that everyone remembers. Should we do another Olympic Games in the city of Vancouver? Well, let's talk about that now with my panel. We got Vancouver City Councilor Pete Fry in the studio. He's a member of the Vancouver Green Party. Pete, thanks a lot for coming in. Nice to be here. And also in the studio is Jack Crompton. He is the mayor of Whistler. Of course, uh, they had a good party back in 2010. Jack, thanks. thank you for coming in. It is a pleasure to be here. Okay, I appreciate both of you fellas being here. Let me go to you first, Counselor. Let's talk about the Olympic Games now. Now, we were talking off air about the 2010 Olympic Games, and I asked you, what, where were you? And you said you kind of, I think you said you kind of enjoyed it. It was a good time, but you're also opposed to it back then, right? Is that correct? Yeah, I, I was opposed to it in the lead up. And of course, once the games were here, I wasn't going to lock myself in a room. And as I was telling you guys, I had a fantastic, <laughs> I watched the gold medal game from, uh, from a pub up at the, uh, peak to peak gondola, took the gondola down, the clouds parted, the sky, the sun came out. It was a fantastic experience coming into the village and the, the party and the atmosphere and the gold medal hockey game. That being said, um, 
I don't think that the Olympics delivered a lot of the the the, the solutions to some of the crises that we that we face now, in particular housing and housing affordability. Okay, why were you opposed to the games back then? Well, because you know the fear was, and I think the fear was manifested that it would exacerbate a lot more gentrification. It would a lot exacerbate a lot more displacement. It would bring a lot of investment and interest into the city of Vancouver, which we saw sort of manifested anecdotally as a lot of foreign investment and a lot of speculation on property in the city of Vancouver. And we're seeing the the fallout from that now. And I think you know we had a, a we missed opportunity with uh, building the athletes' housing, which we ended up building as as I mean the the Olympic Village is lovely, but it could have built itself. We didn't need to leverage the Olympic opportunity to build that kind of condominium housing. We should have built affordable housing for athletes and then turned it into affordable housing for the people of Vancouver. Okay, are you therefore opposed to doing it again? I'm skeptical about the results of doing it again. I mean, I think we have the infrastructure in place now, so it's not likely we're going to be building a lot of new stuff. Uh, with the exception of possibly building new housing, I'm not sure what the games would deliver, and it, it might have a sizable impact on our city. All right, Whistler Mayor Jack Crompton. Of course, back in 2010, you weren't you weren't the mayor of Whistler back then, but you were living in town. And you, what was it like back then in 2010 in Whistler? You enjoyed it, right? Yeah, we'd been dreaming about the game since 1960 as a community. So it was it was really living a dream that our community had really had, and seeing it take place uh, on home soil was incredible uh, from start to finish for me. Whistler uh, was imagined by landscape architect Eldon Beck to be a place that could really hold 50,000 people. We don't often get there other than Christmas, and for two months, our town really stood up to visitation from all over the world. The skiing was terrific. There's uh, there's this sort of myth out there that the snow was bad, but the snow in Whistler at that time was incredible. It was bluebird every day. The mountain was empty. It was terrific skiing. And, you know, uh, at random times, people opening up with their, um, their, their uh, national anthems and meeting people yeah. from all over the world. Uh, it, it is a really, really special time in the history of, of our community for sure. Okay, so, so therefore do it again? You'd be on board with that? There are a significant number of, of questions to answer. It's funny to roll out of bed and see John Furlong on TV sort of dropping 2030 into this sugar high that we're all on remembering <laughs> 10 years ago. So it's been... It's he, didn't, been he didn't run it by you first, huh? <laughs> that was the first... He, he told me about it while he was on TV and I was... Uh, uh, looking at the news. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think it has been said well by others that if the premier and the prime minister decide to put a bid book on the tables of our councils, we'll look at it th at that time. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, remembering 2010 it just takes you back, for me anyway, to a really, really special time in the history of our okay. country. Okay. Speaking of Whistler, Mayor Jack Crompton, also Vancouver City Councilor Pete Fry, you, you mentioned, Councilor, that you were opposed to the 2010 games, but there's a lot of people who thought it was a wonderful experience for the city, that it was good for the economy, um, that it put Vancouver on the map. W would you acknowledge that there you know, there were some benefits from it, or do you think it was largely negative? Oh no, I think it was a wonderful experience. I think people had a really enjoyable time, but I think yeah. that we, 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 we didn't target some of the real needs in our city, and I, and I'm afraid that going forward we will be neglecting those targets again. I mean, it's no secret. What do, what we do you have think a, should be the priority uh, for, the for the city of Vancouver. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think we need to address the opioid crisis, homelessness, uh, affordable housing. We have yeah. crumbling infrastructure, and I'm afraid that. That those will all become distractions if we're if we're too focused on on the kind of infrastructure to support uh, a 2030 games. Okay, but didn't we get a lot of great infrastructure out of the 2010 games? I mean, we got the Canada Line, we got an expanded Whistler Highway. I mean, we had a lot of good stuff built there, right? 
Absolutely. So I don't think I don't anticipate a lot of investment in new infrastructure from the senior governments. And that's sort of my yeah. concern, because I think we're also faced with a, a, a slightly different world in 2030, likely a lot more security concerns, mm. a lot more just administrative approach. And we do have a, a really serious housing crisis that we were only just beginning mm. to feel in 2010. And I think that we by 2030, we may be in a in a in a very different place. And not able to sustain an Olympics and uh, and some of the challenges for our city right now. Okay, I wonder if there might be a feeling out there among people that we sort of already had this party, you know, and it, it sort of reminds me of that sometimes you have a spontaneous party at your house and all your friends come over, you have a great time, you go, wow, let's do it again next Saturday night. And then when you do it again, it's kind of, uh, the magic is kind of gone. We already kind of did it, you know? Like, I mean, what what's your, from your perspective? Pete, Pete Fry throws good parties every time. <laughs> I, I don't think he's ever missed. I mean, what, what about in Whistler? I mean, you mentioned the we're, we're the same. We, I, I think, <laughs> no, I mean, we were built to celebrate as as a, as a community, and it's something that we really take a lot of uh, a joy in doing. So I think Pete points out a really important uh, factor in any planning process like this. It's ensuring that what you intend to deliver, you deliver. And I yeah. that's what has been so uh, significant about uh, the 2010 games for Whistler. We intended to deliver on non-market housing for our employees. That came into reality. And now 1,500 people in our community live in Chequemus Crossing, which was the former Athletes Village, and they do so in non-market housing. And that's a yeah. really big deal for our, our community. We have a housing challenge that's significant, yeah. uh, and, it, and it, it, it exists still. But we would be in a far different place now if that planning hadn't resulted in a legacy of non-market housing. And so okay. whatever happens going forward, I think the big lesson from 2010 is ensure that the legacy that you get on the other side is the one that you intend to deliver on. Okay. Vancouver City Councilor Pete Fry, like if, if we look at this idea, it sort of seemed to come out of the blue yesterday from, from John Furlong. What's your kind of read on the mood down at Vancouver City Hall, whether this idea would fly? I mean, we got a kind of a council there. You got MPA councillors, you got Green Party councillors, you got uh, the mayor there. Do, what's your read of your colleagues? Would they get, you think the city would get behind something like this? Yeah, you know, I think Mayor Kennedy Stewart had a pretty solid response, and I think throwing it to a referendum makes the most sense because I think that's a big, a big ask of the people of Vancouver, and yeah. it may not be something that we're willing to embrace, or it may be something that maybe we really need right now. And I think again, you know, the opportunity, and I want to commend, like Whistler did do it right with the affordable housing, workforce housing that they that they leveraged out of the the Olympics opportunity. We didn't quite achieve the same results in the city of Vancouver, so. Yeah. If I had a more uh, more surety that I knew that we would be able to deliver something really positive and maybe address some of the, the, the gripping crises that we have, I might be a little bit more supportive of the idea. What, what happened to the Athletes Village in Vancouver? Did they not get some affordable housing out of that, some of the units? It no? did, but there was, a, there was a bit of a market bailout and it became more of a, of a condominium project. And I think when you, we consider what Athletes Housing is fundamentally I, I don't think it needed to be the kind of housing that we delivered which is wonderful housing don't get me wrong olympic village is yeah. fantastic but olympic village could have built itself it it's a it's a beautiful location it's got condominiums it's got amenities it could have built itself okay whistler mayor jack crompton what do you think of this idea of a referendum does that make sense to you i think that's getting out ahead of, of things here we had to wait for a, yeah. <laughs> a, a bid yeah. to be established and move forward and i think that that's what is 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 crucial just to remind everyone listening to this is that this was an idea presented at the Vancouver Board of Trade and it hasn't got past the kind of basic hurdles that need 
to be taken over. Really, it's a conversation between Prime Minister Trudeau and and Premier Horgan yeah. to see if we if if this is a, a, a path we choose to walk. Some people think that. The Vancouver 2010 games kind of put Vancouver on the map and were, was a good thing for the economy. But I've also heard an argument that maybe it contributed to the affordability crisis in the city. Because in the aftermath of the 20 games, we've seen how skyrocketing real estate values went up. I mean, do you place any, you pose the, uh, the Olympic Games counselor. Do you, do you see any kind of link there between the affordability challenges in the city and the Olympic Games that we had? Well, I, I, you know, I, I wouldn't be the only one to make that connection. Certainly yeah. a lot of people have made that connection. And I mean, I think part of this conversation is we need to take a look at what lessons were learned from the, the original games build. So, you know, for instance, the Canada line. Canada line's great, but we didn't build it to capacity. We built yeah. it using cut and cover technology that yeah. disrupted a lot of businesses. So maybe we could do that differently. Yeah. What is, what are the opportunities that are going to come out of these games? Does it, does it, I mean, we, we have, and what, what priorities will get shunted to do a games if it comes forward. So if senior funding comes forward, does it mean that we're not getting a subway to UBC? Okay. Guys, time flew by. Thank you, both of you, for coming in. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure to be here. Fantastic to be here. I thought it was going to be a little bit more combative, but that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, guys. That's Whistler Mayor Jack Crompton, Vancouver City Councilor Pete Fry. Appreciate their time today. Saturday night. Tomorrow night. It's fight night in Las Vegas. Have you heard about this big heavyweight boxing match happening tomorrow night? It's Deontay Wilder, the bronze bomber, versus Tyson Fury, the gypsy king out of the United Kingdom. I'm kind of a boxing fan. I'm going to get the pay-per-view tomorrow night, and I got a couple of my buddies coming over to watch it, so I'm kind of fired up for this, so I thought... Why not check in with our friend Keith Idak? He's a senior writer and columnist with BoxingScene.com, and he is on the scene in Vegas. Hiya, Keith. Hey, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for doing this. What's the vibe like down there in Las Vegas? Must be exciting to be there right now. It is. You know, it's getting a little closer to the fight here, so the weigh-in is about to happen. Uh, with about two hours or so, they'll be on the scales here at MGM Grand. There's a really long line outside. It's it's free to the public, but there's a really long line that's been building and building over the last few hours. And if that's any indication of what the crowd will be like tomorrow night, it's a good sign for ticket sales. There are still tickets available, but uh, but there are a lot of British people here. They're making a lot of noise outside, and um, and it looks like a pretty festive atmosphere. So it's uh, so it's a good sign for what should be a very fun heavyweight title fight tomorrow. Yeah, I think so. I think this is really a lot of anticipation for this thing tomorrow. And, and I've heard it say, said, Keith, that maybe this is the biggest heavyweight title fight that we've seen in maybe nearly 25 years. If you go back to the Mike Tyson era, uh, would you agree with that? I mean, you've been to a lot of these big events. Where does this one rank? Yeah, I would say in the United States, it's probably the biggest heavyweight title fight since Lennox Lewis against Mike Tyson. in uh, no, It was in June of 2002. I covered that fight in Memphis, Tennessee. That was a, a spectacle for sure. But Tyson was at the, toward the end of his career, and Lennox Lewis was a heavy favorite. This is a much more evenly matched fight. Uh, but I, I, it, in outside of the United States, the Anthony Joshua-Vladimir Klitschko fight uh, in April of 2017 drew 90,000 people to Wembley Stadium in London. So that's probably okay. the biggest heavyweight fight in general okay. since Lewis Tyson. But this is a big event in the U.S., has the promotional muscle of ESPN and Fox Sports behind it, so uh, okay. yeah, so it's definitely a big, big fight. Keith, we just got we just got one minute left here. This guy Deontay Wilder, he's a bomber. He's a he's a knockout artist. The other the other guy, Tyson Fury, a bit of a uh, bit of a slicker boxer. How do you see this fight going in the minute we got here? 
Yeah, I, th- I think we'll see Deontay Wilder win this fight by knockout. He knocked Tyson Fury down twice in their first fight. Fury fought almost a perfect fight defensively, but those two slight lapses cost him. He got knocked down twice, and it's just, I think, too difficult for even a masterful boxer and a great defensive fighter like Tyson Fury to avoid getting hit with one of those vicious right hands that's going to put yeah. him down and I think eventually put him out. Okay, I think you might be right. Keith, thanks for stopping in. My pleasure, Mike. Have a good I, one. I appreciate it. Enjoy the fight. That is Keith Idak. He's the very fine senior writer and columnist, BoxingScene.com, speaking to us from Las Vegas. That fight is tomorrow night. I think he's got the right guy picked there. I kind of like Fury. I'll kind of be rooting for him, but I think Wilder will get it done.